0: Welcome to the Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies. Hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, R. The reason
1: that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
0: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and also a registered rep of Foresight Fund Services. My co host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. The professor is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion today is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Really, what a special show today. First, uh, Professor Siegel's in the studio with me. We were just talking. It's probably been about nine months that we've been in the studio together professor it is great to be with you here on Warren's campus uh, and back in the studio together absolutely So and a special guest. Today and a too. special guest. He's been a return guest. Um, we're going to be to talking with St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank President James Bullard, one of the foremost monetary policy experts. Always something interesting to say. We've have James with us for the hour, and so we're really looking forward to digging into monetary policy. It's been a lot of going on in the economy that we're going to talk with President Bullard on. Uh, Professor, before we, we introduce James, maybe we can just start with your take. We've had a lot of News on the tax front. Um, yeah. We've had a little bit of volatility in the market, if you would call that uh, <laughs> the brief sell-off that we're seeing in the last few days. Any sort of yeah. thoughts on what's been happening?
2: Yeah, I, I definitely think it's tax-related. Uh, yesterday and today, um, it's going to be di- more difficult than I had thought and many had thought. And we got a, you know, we the market got a burst of optimism when um, the congressional leaders agreed on a one and a half trillion dollar ten-year deficit oh, wow, so we got over that hurdle, uh, then they're going to come. Well, you know, we had the House bill, now we have the Senate bill. It's really – well, it, it's different and not different. I mean it's different in very key uh, – some very key aspects. Um, the market yesterday got really discouraged when they saw the corporate tax cut was going to be uh, deferred in the Senate bill to 2018 uh, – to 2019 actually – um, although when you look at the details, there's some very good things about the the corporate tax cuts can be made permanent, and they're going to allow immediate expensing, I think, as early as next year on that. So uh, the uh, second look at it isn't bad, but the, the worry still is, is passing it. Um, uh, as you know, the Senate bill allows no state and local deductions, and um, that was put in the House bill because of the Republicans in New York particularly were under a tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, to keep uh, at least some of those uh, deductions. So uh, I, 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 there's there's worry, and I think that's been d- driving the market lower. There's been virtually no news, as you know, the week after the uh, employment report is usually extremely light, and it was. There was really no economic news. Uh, earnings season is just about over, over. It was a very good earnings season, uh, as I anticipated. Um, next week we get price indices Uh, But uh, the taxes are front and center in terms of uh, what is impacting the market uh, the last uh,
0: week. All right, very good. Any more comments before you want to bring in our, our guest? No, I want to bring in our okay, guest. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. Uh, so we're going to be uh, on, a, on a... Professor Siegel likes to focus on monetary policy. He's really trained there. And really, we couldn't be more pleased to welcome Jim Bullard, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Uh, they He oversees the activities of the 8th Federal Reserve District, and that includes the St. Louis headquarters, but also branches in Little Rock, Arkansas, Louisville, Kentucky, Memphis, Tennessee. I actually was just in his division earlier this week. I took a trip to Fayetteville. Uh, There was a Global Interdependence Center conference in Fayetteville. I got to tour the museum there, James, Uh, where some of your your colleagues were presenting at the conference. Um, Welcome back to our program.
1: Well, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to hear that you could make it
0: out to the 8th District. Yeah. It's a very interesting conversation there, um, and, and you, you know, it, we're going to get your views on what's been happening on monetary policy. Uh, maybe you could uh, sort of set the stage. I know when we've had you in the past, you have this very regime-based view of the world and that you're looking at regimes that's tough to predict. Maybe we could start, I could start off with just a broad question of what regime are we in today?
1: Well, I think we continue to be in a low interest rate, low inflation regime, and I think the global aspect is something to keep in mind about that. Uh, Some of the numbers in the U.S. on the growth side do look a little bit better, but I would still say overall we're in this uh, rather low regime, and that's making me think that the policy rate, is about right where it is, uh, maybe with a little bit of upside risk but but in contrast to some of my colleagues, I would not think that we have to um, march up considerably higher from where we are now in order to keep unemployment at a low level and to keep inflation under control and I think the other thing to talk about here in this uh, in this hour is uh the the Inflation numbers are low. That's really been the surprise of 2017. That's probably not going to improve by the end of the year here. And uh, inflation expectations are running uh, light as well as measured by the TIPS market. So I think uh, you know that's kind of the situation for monetary policy right now.
2: Jim, Jeremy Siegel, thank you again for for being on and um i i i do want to return to that because i mean your view and more people are moving towards your view and you know your view and it was my view i remember a couple of years ago saying i was convinced that the that the long-term interest rate was nowhere near as high as the fed was uh, putting it and indeed it is it has come down substantially but before we return to that um we all know you're uh, you know next year going to be sitting with a uh, new chairman and uh, uh I'd like your your comments you've had interaction he's been a fellow with you on on the um, FOMC uh the board you've heard his interaction uh tell us a little bit about your impression uh
1: jay powell has been a great colleague on the fomc and in the fed system generally uh... since he came on as governor he he you know rolled up his sleeves got involved in many issues uh... including regulatory and monetary policy issues but also including operational issues within the federal reserve that i think exposed him to um, many people all around the system and and certainly my interactions have been very positive. He's a consensus builder. He's a very sharp business person and has a lot of acumen. So I, I think uh, I think he's uh, uh, got a good future as a Fed chair.
2: Uh, let, let me ask you, uh, are, are you at all concerned? I mean, this has uh, certainly been um, uh, described in the press. Uh, he is the, the first chairman since G. William Miller, you know, decades ago, uh, that neither has either a Ph.D. or an undergraduate degree uh, in economics. And uh, uh, I-, I know Charlie Plasser, uh, you know, former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of-, of Philly and someone I know very well right from our d- district here, um, you know, he, he expressed some concern about that, and there has been some concern about would would he have the depth of understanding of economics not being trained in that area? What is your feeling about that, Jim?
1: Well, uh, I I think, first of all, the Fed has lots of expertise, both at the board staff uh, and around the FOMC table and at the uh, Reserve Bank staff. So we have lots of input from professional economists uh... there'll be no shortage of that uh... i think with uh... Paul chairmanship um... and i think he's uh... he's been at the fed for i guess about five years or so so he's had plenty of experience himself in deciphering all the arguments that are being made around uh... current monetary policy so i i think he'll be uh... I think he'd be very good. You know, it might be a little bit different than having, let's say, you know, the Princeton Press professor Ben Bernanke as your as your chair, but uh, different people have different styles, and I'm sure he'll be able to manage very effectively.
2: And, and we should say that, you know, I, I mean, I think that he was a member of the Carlisle Group and private equity, he worked for Dylan Reed. I mean, he's not foreign to the to the capital markets, and I think
1: that's well, on that certain. side he'll have much better knowledge, I think, than some of our immediate past right. chairs. Okay. Uh where he's he's got a depth of experience there that uh uh for all their um success and all their credentials, Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen could not bring that to the table because mm-hmm. they didn't have that kind of experience.
2: Did, do you have any any idea uh uh of the vice chair? Um Uh, You know, it, it was a surprise departure for Stan Fisher, someone who was a colleague of mine going through graduate school and someone I knew very, very well. And I think we all had tremendous respect for him. And I thought that that would be the great vice chair during this transition. He would be on for another six months. Now that spot is open and unfilled. How do you how do you feel about that?
1: Well, uh, I'd very much like to see the White House, uh, you know, name some other candidates for uh, gov- for the various positions on the Board of Governors. Um, you know, we're down to four governors. That's probably not enough to handle the workload effectively. And uh, I'd very much like to see an appointment made there. Uh, I haven't heard very much about uh, what...
2: Do you have a favorite? Do you have someone you would think would be good in that position?
1: Well, I have lots of people that I like that uh, that I think would be good, but I I don't uh, I don't have any indication. Uh, it- it seemed to be the case that the White House wanted to get this chair nomination put up and and perhaps get the hearing behind them and and see how it goes in the Senate and then come back to this issue. So maybe that's the way we're going to end up. Let, let me here.
0: let me lobby for Professor Siegel over here. <laughs> um, you, can, you can make a raise a case for him, the Wharton Thank professor, you. <laughs> uh, um, Jim. So on you know on this uh, the move away from economics or economists PhDs. The I, I've heard some people who watch the Fed talk about you know will the Trump administration and the move towards business people, will they sort of give less support to just hiring much more PhDs around the Fed generally? I mean, do you see any signs of that, that depending on who else they put in there, that there's any concern for the big army of of PhD staff that you have across the Fed?
1: No, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, that is a trend. That's a secular trend. It's been going on for a long time. It's just getting more and more specialized. The models are getting more and more complex and more and more detailed, and there's just no getting around it. You're gonna. It's like everything else. You have to have lots of expertise around to, to handle all that. I mean, if you were going to do uh, geology, you're going to have a committee that did geology and tried to find the oil. Uh, you're probably going to have to... Hire some geologists in order to help you think about rock formations and where the oil might be. I think the same thing is true for economics you're going to have to have some some people with training in the area in order to analyze the complex issues that come up
2: yeah and I, I, you know you mentioned Fred's staff, and you know there's some very very good people there that then then again. You know, of course, I, you could say virtually no one really uh, foresaw the financial crisis. They didn't. Uh, so there's a, there's, a, there's a number of people said, hey, is that? Uh, are they the people you always want to listen to? Or do you want to have some independence and hear some other voices that, uh, you know, might think differently in terms of what's going to happen to the economy? I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, would he be, do you think more captive than someone like uh, Bernanke uh, to the Fed staff?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, I'm just giving my own take sure. on the monetary policy debate. I, I say it's a global debate that goes on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And so you're getting input from all kinds of corners of the globe, and certainly from financial markets, uh, the committee itself, the staff itself, but it's not like it's in a closed room uh where you're not listening to the rest of the world so I think that um you know you don't really have to have uh you know a perfect alignment of uh of backgrounds in order to get all that input from all around the world and and i think we i think we do that in in some respects so if you think about the run up to the financial crisis, you know, it's true that uh, we did not predict a financial crisis, but I think there's some revisionist history that goes on because the housing bubble was a big topic of discussion for several years before it actually uh, came to an abrupt end, and many people were. Um, talking about it both inside and outside financial markets and in academia. And who was the Fed
2: governor that you know, passed away? Uh, I don't remember his name that was there.
1: That's and, right. He wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. Uh, Do you remember yeah. his name? Uh, I'm, I'm blanking. Yeah, I'm blanking, the, too.
2: Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was one I of those that uh, wrote a book about it beforehand, and, Everyone sort of said, We hear you but it's,
1: it's Ned <laughs> Ed Gramwick.
2: Ned Gramwick. Okay, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. he so
1: wrote a whole book about it and uh unfortunately uh uh you know, he passed away during that period. But um but the, you know, that shows you that there was a vigorous debate going on at the time. You know, we didn't you know, you could argue we didn't come out on the right side of that debate, but but I think there's a pretty good radar about all the arguments that are being made.
0: James, you just said that we we have a global discussion twenty four hours a day, three you know three sixty five days a week. Is it and and when Yellen talked about uh, I forget which meeting it was, but after one of the meetings she talked about it being global concerns, concerns from China impacting U.S. policy. Is that you know something that is increasingly becoming an issue for for you? Just the global phenomena of low rates around the world, low growth, or or scares from China being the driver of U.S. monetary policy. Should it be so global and? focus for the U.S.?
1: Well, I I just want to caution people. You know, one of the big issues for the Fed is the so-called R-star, the real safe rate of interest or the natural rate of interest uh, in the global economy. And, you know, I I would say here in the second half of 2017, we've got some of the growth numbers look a little bit better. It looks like tracking estimates for the second half, the third and the fourth quarter together will be maybe two, two and three quarters percent uh, growth at an annual rate over that time period. So there, you know, that gets people kind of excited in the U.S., but I just caution them to look at the global situation. We've still got negative rates, nominal rates in Europe, uh, far out the yield curve. We've got negative rates in Japan, far out the yield curve. And uh, you have to wonder if, you know, the U.S. can go very far in an environment where the Western world is is basically and still in negative rates and will be for a while. It, it, eventually, that will probably get unwound, but that's still quite a ways in the future.
2: The you know going back to um, that our star, that's the long and again you you described it correctly. The long run natural rate, that that's the long run rate. Uh, that the Fed thinks down to four and uh, uh, two and three quarters percent. Um, uh, Jim, you you said last I remember a year ago you thought that it was you know uh, what we should be at is a little less than one. Um, I, I I don't think it's a secret by saying that we know where your dots are on the. Dot. <laughs> On yes. um, the dot plot is now. So that does bring a, a little question. Um, uh, it looks to me uh, that we're going to have a rate increase of uh, 25 basis points in the December meeting. Um, that's above your dot. Is am I right on that?
1: Uh, well, what I've what I've said is that the, the regime view suggest that you should just take the evidence at face value and you should not assume that the real rate is going to uh, revert to some mean that existed in the 1980s or 1990s or 2000s. The evidence is that the short you know, the sort of the one year ex post real rate of interest has been declining ever since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And if, and it's declined a lot, uh, as much as 700 basis points over that time period. And that's kind of your base rate or pretty close to your base rate for your Taylor rule. And, you know, if something has been on a downward trend for 30 years, it's probably not wise to predict that all of a sudden it's going to turn around in the next year or two and start going back up to its mean. Uh, I think the better the better way to handle it for policy purposes is just to say, well, there are somehow there are forces at work, which has kept this rate very low. And we should accept that evidence, and we should assume that that, those forces are going to continue to be operative over the next two years. Therefore, our our benchmark for our Taylor rule is at a very low level. And then we can correct for gaps in inflation and um, unemployment uh, from there. But but the, the basic idea is that you shouldn't assume the mean reversion that many people do. Uh, that you're going to go back to some level, general level of rates that uh, existed pre crisis.
2: Jim, if you were a voting member, I, I don't, am I right? You rotate on in 19, is that it's again? 19, yeah. Yeah. If you were a voting member, um, this is a kind of pointed question, so I, 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 well, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, you're, you're facing this December meeting, uh, given your dot, would you vote against a rate hike in December?
1: Uh, well, I I don't know. Uh, we'll have to wait till I get to the meeting and, and look at the data at that time. I have been uh, concerned that with inflation falling below our target this year, farther than we expected, uh, the core PC inflation rate is only 1.3% year over year now and uh, has been falling this year. So... Uh, I'm a little concerned that we send the wrong signal in December by raising the policy rate, and that depresses inflation expectations and possibly, you know, cements in a lower inflation rate over the forecast horizon. Uh, and I, th- I think that's maybe um, a downside of a rate increase in December. Now, uh, on the other hand, I've said that, uh, uh, you know, I'm willing to go... with with data and you know growth prospects uh, have been better uh this fall and and to the extent you think that that extends into 2018 that might be a bullish factor for the US economy uh, on that i would say that most forecasts that i've seen even though they have 2 and 3 quarters percent or so for the second half of 2017 most most forecasters have that declining in 2018 and 2019 Back down to something closer to the two percent trend that I've been talking about. So, um, to the extent that what's going on now is temporary, that then I would, uh, I would that would lean against uh, rate increase in December for me. Um, so we've got many factors uh, to consider here. Yeah,
2: Tintra, do you think uh, dec- you know? You say decline again, and you're right. Many of them do. Uh, you know, there's some people uh, suggesting that even though we haven't had infrastructure spending that Trump had promised and not even tax reform, That, and I do want to talk about that certainly later on our, 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 our show, um, that uh, the lower regulations that we've had um, might be some reason for better optimism on productivity uh, going forward, which we know has been dismally low over the uh, recovery period since the financial crisis. Uh, do you give much weight to that, or do you think that's not an important factor?
1: I'm, I'm uh, somewhat sympathetic to that. I think the uh, deregulatory attitude is probably you know, is very different for this administration compared to the last one, and that has made uh, business people uh, far more confident than they were. You can see that in the sentiment surveys and i think more inclined to invest in um plant equipment than they would have been previously you would think the more capital you know would improve productivity and you'd get uh you get improvements on that score that process takes a while to play out so you know kind of believe it when i see it so but
2: you don't think the recent uh, strength in, as you said in the second half of the year which is a bit of a little on surprise on the upside from what was expected is is not due to uh, a regulatory decline, at least at this point.
1: Uh, I don't know if you can draw a straight line, um, but uh, I'm sympathetic to the story, but if you actually looked at the evidence, I think it's hard to draw a straight line there. The, The thing about regulation is that it's a very broad category that spreads across all kinds of different aspects of the economy. And, you know, which rules are we really talking about? Which ones have not changed? Which ones are changing? If they do change, are they changing for the worse or are they changing for the better from a productivity standpoint? Um, So those are hard things, I think, to measure, and that would take a long time to try to sort that out. But as a general idea, uh, I'm sympathetic to it, and I think it has improved uh, business confidence.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've seen, and I'm curious how you would even measure the regulation change from your perspective. We've seen in our, in our show, we've had a few discussions, the largest drop in pages in the Federal Register this year. We saw, I heard last week somebody said 800 different regulations rolled back. Um, is, do you have a quantification of, of that concept, or is it just, like you said, it's too loose to figure out exactly how it's being? Well, I
1: mean, you have to look at every one of those and ask yourself, you know, was this just kind of a frivolous regulation that caused a lot of paperwork and, and therefore was unproductive from the economy, from the perspective of the economy as a whole, or are you removing a regulation that will come back to bite you later because, uh, you know, is safeguarding against a bad outcome that is now more likely to occur? Uh, you know that's a pretty hard judgment uh to make, but um regardless of that, I think the 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 sentiment in the business community has been very positive about it and it has given them more confidence to invest in in their businesses and and you would think that that would eventually feed through to uh, better productivity but uh we need to wait to see if that actually happens.
0: Jim, because we have you for the whole hour, we're going to take a break really quick early here, um, and we're going to be with you for the rest of the hour talk with Jim Bullard, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. We've got Professor Siegel in the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets at SiriusXM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host Jeremy Schwartz, alongside my co-host Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. We're talking with Jim Bullard, the President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. We're hearing his take on monetary policy, on the new Fed chair for next year, as well as just how p- the economy and policy is going to evolve next year. Professor, I know you are anxious to jump back in on following up on just the the, the Taylor Rule. Yeah,
2: or. I mean, Jim, you mentioned the Taylor Rule in our first half, and. Um, I'm wondering. You we know, were talking about John Taylor, and uh, he did work in the '90s, basically describing how the Fed has acted in response to unemployment, inflation, and actually ma- making that response something that uh, perhaps the Fed should follow. Now, now that we do have a you know Republican chairman, um, although we did under Bernanke too, not under Yellen. But uh, we know that the Republicans uh, have um, uh, supported legislation to uh, not force the Fed to adhere to the Taylor Rule, but to explain deviations uh, if it should occur from uh, the Taylor Rule. This is something the Federal Reserve has uh, very strongly resisted. Um, Do you think that uh, Powell will also resist it now that uh, it is coming from his own party, or or do you think there might be a different tack here?
1: Uh, well, I don't want to speak for Jay, and I, I'm sure he'll be asked this in his confirmation uh, hearing, so he'll have to decide for himself what he, what he wants to say on that, but for speaking for myself, I've been pretty supportive of the idea that we should uh, talk to the public in terms of some kind of baseline, which is how I interpret this, and then why we're deviating from that baseline. I just, I just think that's a part of good communication for any central bank, really. And um, you know, a lot of the debate gets framed around, you know, well, would you have to slavishly follow a particular version of a Taylor rule? And I, I don't think that that's what is being proposed. I think it's looser than that, but it would kind of guide the discussion in a way that would probably be informative to markets and to other observers of monetary policy. So I, I think it would be a good way to go. And one thing that we're doing uh, now, and I would like to do more of, is we have included um Taylor-type rules in our, our reports to Congress. I'd like th- to see those reports be quarterly, have a monetary policy report like other central banks do, and then as part of the discussion there, you could talk about various policy rules and what they would recommend and where the committee is relative to those uh, recommendations. Um, so I think there's a lot of potential to do good things in this area.
2: Uh, this is Let me drill down on this a little bit. Uh, uh, basically, um, uh, the Taylor rule um, depends critically on that R star, uh, the uh, you know short-term real natural rate of interest. And when you put two percent as he usually did, and as we usually did years ago in there, yes, it 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 then says we should be much higher. But given the instability of R star, which is you know something you in fact have been one of the leading Spokespersons on the Fed saying it has fallen. We can't use the old R star. Um, I'm, I'm. I guess I'm a little surprised on uh, the support for a terror sort of rule. Um, uh, do you, Do you think people will will know R star or be able to be flexible on that issue?
1: Yeah, I mean maybe I'm just so used to it that uh, that <laughs> I think flexibly about this, but. Um, it's true if you tried to be really rigid about it and tried to force the committee to take a prescription, you might go astray because there are assumptions behind, like any equation, there are a lot of assumptions uh, behind it, and uh, those is, the environment could be changing over time in a way that would uh, you should be adapting to. But um, what's being proposed is that you uh, the central bank should explain its deviations from typical Taylor rules that are used, and I think it's in my mind it's easy to explain uh, why we're deviating, and one of the reasons is because it looks like the safe real rate of return has fallen uh, consistently over a very long period of time, and therefore we should be taking that into account when we're making monetary policy. Um,
2: But that isn't something that John Taylor has talked about. I
1: just wanted to get one other thought in here about this. The Fed already does this because you have members uh, often in their speeches and their public communications, they'll use um, various types of Taylor rules as a proxy for how monetary policy is going to evolve in the future. And I'll give you examples. Uh, Then-Chair Bernanke gave an entire speech about the run-up to the housing crisis and how he didn't think the fed had contributed to the housing crisis through monetary policy and he used taylor rules all through that speech in order to illustrate the kinds of things uh, that were going on at that time Chair allen also has given uh... you know very detailed speeches with uh... She even went out to Stanford, to the Hoover Institution, where John Taylor is, and gave a whole speech uh, you know, using Taylor rules and uh, describing current monetary policy in terms of deviations. So this already goes on. Anyway, I think what's being talked about in Congress would codify to some degree uh, that they maybe would like reports in, that are, do that and come in that direction, because that makes it easier to understand where current monetary policy is relative to a benchmark.
2: You know, the, the Republicans have generally been more critical of the Fed uh I would say than the Democrats over the over the, the last decade or so. And obviously we got extremes like Rand Paul who says abolish the Fed and uh you know, and that certainly is not at at all a position of the, of the of the GOP. Um some uh, one of the things and your your the President of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis uh your appointment does not go through congress right you're 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 vetted by the board which does go you know appointments do go through congress um but all the bank presidents of which there's 12 although only 5 are voting at any one time um are picked by their board and then a, a, a board of govern, a board of directors of the regional bank and then approved by the board of governors without a congressional the board of governors in washington has to be uh, approved before the Senate in hearings is this a good structure uh many people are calling for reform uh more congressional oversight, or do you think do you, do you, do you see any way that uh the current system could or should be uh, improved in in that manner
1: um well i As far as having the presidents of the banks also be presidentially appointed and confirmed by the Senate, I think the main problem with that is that the appointments process has become very cumbersome and appears to be on the verge of breaking down completely, um, where it's very hard to get uh, all the positions filled. Um, There's kind of, uh, you know, ongoing warfare over this on, on Capitol Hill, and uh that, I think, has also led to even the governor's positions not being filled. We haven't been at full strength uh, for the number of governors for quite some time. So I think it's probably not a good time to start thinking about even more appointments that have to be confirmed by the Senate. So you think
2: it's a, a basically good structure now that should be maintained?
1: I think it has worked very well, and and uh, you know, a person like me, I, I do have to get approval by uh, the Board of Governors, so uh, which originally occurred when Bernanke was chair, and and uh, so there is you know plenty of accountability there, and and ultimately, the Board of Governors has oversight authority for the system as a whole. And I think you can bring in people with, uh, certainly with monetary policy perspectives, but also with operational expertise to help run the Federal Reserve System. And they have done that in recent years, and that that's very helpful. I think so. Um, so I think it actually works pretty well the way it is.
0: Let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Jim Bullard, president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, uh, overseeing the 8th District. And, and Jim, one of your big employers, I mentioned I was in Fayetteville. you got the Walton family down there. We have Walmart. Um, and there's, you know, I think one of the big stories in the markets this year is just really sort of the death of retail by Amazon. Everything is under pressure. Any Any insights you see from the local economy in your district that you want to bring sort of to the more national level? Any implications that you're seeing talking to the business leaders down in your district?
1: Uh, well, I'm, I do spend time in northwest Arkansas and uh, talk to the business leaders down there and uh, certainly get a lot of insight from them. Uh, I think on the retail question, it it is shaping up as a battle between Amazon and, and Walmart, and I'm sure when you're down there, you know that uh, Walmart has acquitted itself quite well, I think, this year in investing in technology and, and trying to... Uh, change its business model to compete with amazon uh they're very formidable competitors and and we'll just have to see how that plays out going forward um also i think you know on this grocery store issue not everybody knows that you know what the market shares really are the largest grocer in the nation is walmart 14 percent share if i have my numbers right uh whole foods is less than a one percent share or something on the order of one percent so it's a very different uh, uh, sort of volume uh, and market share in that business line. So uh, that's only been the latest front opening in the retail wars. But uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, very exciting times, and uh, uh, you know we'll we'll see how it plays out.
2: You know, um, one of the things, of course, that's a big difference is Walmart has reported years and years of good profit and has paid. Uh, corporate profits tax. Amazon somehow is, doesn't report any profits and hasn't. So this brings us to taxes. Now, of course, the Fed is concerned about monetary policy and fiscal policy is the bailiwick of, of Congress. But clearly, what goes on with the whole tax system has a big effect on the economy and on interest rates and the question of deductibility or non-deductibility. I mean, what what is your current take on uh, the, the House bill, the Senate bill, um, and and the chances for uh, tax reform this year.
1: Well, on the odds of passage, uh, I don't think I have any better insight than anyone else that's uh, kind of a arm's length of a observer of this process. So. Uh, you know, when politics really heats up, it can change, you know, day to day or even hour by hour, and and uh, that's probably what's going on now. Um, but as far as the general idea of reforming the corporate tax code in the U.S., I think that is a good idea. I think there are actually, you know, people might say it quietly, but I think there's broad-based bipartisan support that are corporate tax code is probably not the right one to be competitive with our rivals uh, globally. So that has provided the kind of core of this tax reform effort, and, um, you know, we'll have to see what's in the final package. But uh, on that dimension, I think a lot of good could be done. Uh, We have because of our odd structure and because we're out of step with our uh, rivals internationally, we've got our major corporations are doing odd things, keeping money overseas, setting up accounts in, you know, offshore. Uh, and they've got armies of lawyers and accountants that are helping them do these things, and that's just all. And you know, from an economist's point of view, that's all unnecessary, and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be encouraging that kind of activity.
2: You know what I think is 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 a shame, and 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 you touched on on this is, uh, you know, there was bipartisan support for a corporate tax reform um, and lowering the corporate tax. Many Democrats said, yes, we've got to lower it. But because it's wrapped in such a partisan way, uh, I would be shocked if any Democrat now voted for it. I actually, I don't know how you feel, I think it's a mistake to bundle the personal tax reform. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but uh, so much more controversial and complicated with the corporate tax reform, which I think had more bipartisan support. What? What is your opinion on that?
1: Uh, well, I'm— You know, a good thing about my job is I don't have to try to uh, pass a tax bill through the Congress, but uh, I would say generally if you're trying to do something on taxes, in order to get the votes, you have to claim uh, some kind of tax relief for the middle class, because that's where a lot of the votes are. And so in order to get it done, I think they probably felt like they had to bring uh, personal tax rates into the picture. And, obviously, many other bills, bells and whistles have been added in the meantime, and that's why it turns out to be a complicated thing.
0: Uh, President Bullard, we were talking last week, just in preparation for this show this week, and uh, one of the economists we were speaking with you know, asked, I said, you know what would you ask Jim if we had him? And he he asked about mission creep at the Fed, if you think that the Fed is becoming too... Concerned about markets if you're trying to sort of coddle the markets whether it's the equity markets the taper tantrum um, you're talking about uh, some people are talking about inequality it's from the fed or, or is the fed going away from its original mission of focusing on employment inflation and thinking about the markets too much
1: no i i don't think so uh you know it is monetary policy which you might think of as being relatively narrow but in order to understand the context for monetary policy you really have to understand the entire economy and not just the us economy really the global economy so that's why the debate always spills over into very broad issues and and reaches into many uh quarters that might seem somewhat distant from monetary policy itself but at the end of the day we have our regular meetings and we are making decisions on our policy rate and on supplemental policies uh uh when we were at the zero bound and and uh so it all does come back home i i I think at the end even though the discussion is very wide-ranging
2: yeah you know there was I guess the uh, during Greenspan's tenure, there was the discussion of the so-called Greenspan put, which was that if things went bad, uh, the Fed would lower rates and rescue the markets. Um, and I think, uh, you know, Jeremy here was a little bit wondering about if the markets tank for whatever reason, uh, you know, w- would it put the F- Fed on on a pause? Well, maybe it should, If if tanking the markets means there's doubt about, uh, the future economy um, isn't. Shouldn't it be the job of the Fed to pay attention to that?
1: Yeah, I've always felt on this issue that uh, it looks like the Fed, you know, pays a lot of attention to financial markets, but that isn't really what's going on. The the Fed is trying to look out for the U.S. economy going forward. And the stock market, of course, is trying to value corporations by looking at the economy going forward. So the stock market and the Fed are both looking at the same thing. And if both of them see uh, trouble ahead, then uh, the uh, equity prices are going to decline and the Fed is going to uh, you know, lower rates or have an easier policy than otherwise. Uh, but it's going to be because both entities are seeing trouble ahead. So I don't... I would not describe that as a as a Greenspan put. I would just describe that as as good monetary policy and rational um, judgment in financial markets about how they see the evolution yeah. of corporate profits. Yeah.
2: So, we, so we should really. I mean, that's one of the variables that the Fed should pay attention to, not in and of itself, but because of uh, the implications for the real economy. And,
1: uh, yeah. Um, on corporate profits, uh, one thing about that is that most of the traded companies have a lot of their profits overseas, so the profitability often depends, importantly, on the global macroeconomic situation, and profits have been good recently, uh, in part because the global economy doesn't seem to have any weak spots uh, right now. That's been the first time in uh, quite a few years that you couldn't point to obvious re- weak spots in the global economy. So. That, I think, has been helping equity prices uh, this year, and um, that's not exactly the same as uh, just having the U.S. economy booming all by itself with the rest of the world maybe not doing as well. So it's a little bit different situation. Maybe than in other circumstances.
2: You know, w- one more question, going back again on on corporate tech. Because let's assume Congress gets its act together and passes something. Be, you know, between the House and the Senate, uh, has has the Fed staff made a projection on what that might do to GDP or or interest rates? I mean, there's a lot of projection. Of course, the, the, it allows for a trillion and a half. Dollars of extra debt over the next 10 years, but um, uh, uh, or have, has there been any analysis there, or what do you think might be the impact if we do get some of that tax relief?
1: Well, what we've done with our own forecast here is take a wait-and-see attitude. Uh, I didn't want to be turning in forecasts. Uh, in let's say earlier this year that we're trying to guess at what would happen through the political process or w- if anything would happen at all. And so uh, I think it's a good approach is just to wait and see what actually gets passed. and then at that point we can incorporate that into our forecast and see if it uh, see how, which aspects we think uh, make you know important differences that might feed back into monetary policy.
0: We're talking with Jim Buller, president, CEO of St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank, Saint Louis. Um Jim, you know, I know, Professor. We were talking before the show on just the trends in unemployment, which have been dipping down, you know, to levels we haven't seen. We're we're getting close to the three handle, which we haven't really seen in a long time. You're getting close to fifty-year lows in the unemployment rate, and we still haven't really seen uh, budding inflation pressures, wage pressures. Uh, Jim, do you have any sense of how you how low the unemployment rate is going to go, and is is it ever going to lead to wage growth? <laughs> Very good question. <laughs> I,
1: well, um, I think. Uh, uh, unemployment can trend uh, lower here, but I don't think that it has much of an impact on infla- the inflation outlook. If you look at Phillips curve estimates, even by advocates of uh, Phillips curve relationships, uh, it, it appears that the statistical relationship between low unemployment and inflation is very, very uh, small at this point, so possibly even zero. So this suggests you could go to a three-handle, 3.5 percent, or even lower, and you wouldn't actually see very much on inflation. You know, maybe a tenth or a couple tenths, or something like that. And we're below our target anyway. So I'm not sure that this uh, this low unemployment environment is really something to worry about from an inflation perspective. Uh, I think you have to make some other kind of argument about it if you're if you're worried about unemployment going too low. I mean. The other thing is that you've got um uh labor force participation, which has been declining since two thousand, uh and I was projecting that labor force participation would continue to decline, but it's actually flattened out some in the last eighteen months or more here and so that's been a bit of even a even longer,
2: almost three or four years actually flattening. Yeah,
1: it's, well uh, dep- I suppose, depending on how you cut the data there. So I've been a little bit surprised on that, but I think we are at a low enough unemployment rate that we actually are starting to attract some people off of the sidelines. You're, t- you're getting marginal workers uh, back into the workforce. Uh, I think that's a, a good development for the economy, and with low productivity growth, you know, the only way you can get enough output is to have more hours worked.
2: You know, it, You bring up something really important, you know we all know but we've been talking about the natural rate of interest the long term dots uh for the fed funds projection um you, we don't supply those individual dots for the natural rate of unemployment which of course is another variable you're asked to do every quarter it sounds jim that you're well below what the fed is now uh putting up there as the median estimate is 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 that right
1: uh, I think uh, we're we're below the committee's median. I think that that's a, a fair assessment. But what I'm saying is that whatever you want to assume for the natural rate of unemployment and however big you think that gap is, it still doesn't have very much of an implication for inflation according to the latest uh, Phillips curve estimates. Yeah, so it doesn't matter. It yeah.
2: that, but but let's let's step one step low before there. Shouldn't it matter at some point for wage increases? Well, we'll talk about whether they go into inflation, but the concept of tighter labor markets uh, and wage increases, do you think that that is the part that's broken or it's coming from the wage increases uh, into the prices that might be the questionable relationship?
1: Well, I have felt that the wage increases, which are, if you go on an ECI measure, maybe two and a half percent per year, that that number has been, you know, pretty reasonable. If you think labor productivity is growing at half a percent per year and the inflation target is two percent, then that comes to two and a half percent nominal wage growth, which is about what we've seen. So, to me, that's all very consistent with the idea that you're at this two percent growth trend and not too much is going to change and there aren't very many there's sorry there isn't very much going on in terms of cyclical dynamics now because you're way past the big recession and, and uh, all the cyclical dynamics have settled down so you're just on this trend growth path, two percent uh, growth and so wages are increasing the same way they would along a balanced growth path. So that all makes sense as far as, as far as I can tell.
2: You, you think productivity is down to – well, if productivity was down to half, I, we wouldn't get even 2% GDP, would we? I don't well, think you our could, labor force – you,
1: you could say um, productivity is 1%, uh, but the inflation rate is only averaged 1.5%. That would be another way to get uh, the 2.5% wage growth. But either way, I think it's, it's pretty consistent with what's actually been happening over the last several years.
0: We have about three minutes left with you, Jim. It's been a long conversation. Um, maybe I could ask you an open-ended question. What have we not talked about that you would have uh, preferred we talk about? Is there anything on your mind that we didn't get to? Well,
1: I thought with Jeremy Siegel here, we'd be talking about uh, equity prices, overvaluation <laughs> of equity prices, uh, bubble in in stocks. Are, are we going to talk about that?
2: Uh, I would. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. I don't. I don't think it's a bubble. Uh, the Fed has said it's high, but. Uh, not that high, given the low interest rates, is pretty much what what I've uh, uh, said. I mean, I can see a twenty PE with a low interest rate structure, and you're one of the believers that we're in a low interest rate structure. So, let me ask you, Jim do you feel do you share my view on that?
1: Yeah, I'm sympathetic with that. That we're okay for now, but uh, but I you know I definitely keeping an eye on it. Um, Uh, I think it is an important issue for
2: the Fed uh, in 2018. One more thing on that about, you know, when the recession might end, you're saying the unemployment could go low. You know, we've had the wonderful experience of 150 to 200,000 plus or minus every month. Um, That can't be the long-run average, though, right? And given yep. the growth,
0: it's... it's this is going to be the, probably the final answer, too.
2: Yeah, that yeah. Uh, that's what that's what worries me. For so year been, after year after what's going to happen? Something has to so hit there.
1: One thing I've been looking at there, you know, we always talk about the monthly growth number, but I'd, I like to get people looking at the year-over-year percent increase in uh, non-farm payrolls. That number has declined now to about 1.3 or 1.4 percent. It was as high as 2.3% at the beginning of 2015 so it's been on a steady decline ever since 2015 i think it'll continue to decline in 2018 uh, all the way down to 1% okay so
0: professor any closing thoughts here last 20 seconds
2: no i think i think we've covered just about everything. Um, <laughs> I, I do remember you said we could go down to 3.5%, so there, there, there's a little room there. <laughs> well,
1: but, we did get to 3.8% in 2000.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. so that would be a 40, 50-year low if we get below the yeah.
0: 3.8%. We've been okay. talking with the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank, Jim Bullard. Always a great discussion on monetary policy. Professor Siegel, great to be back in the studio with you. Thank, Thank you. you to our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer. You can listen to us every week on our Behind the Markets podcast,